Welcome to Heritage Tree, where we talk about heritage care and development for people and organizations. And now to our host, Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe. Today we're going to read out of numbers, numbers about the Korah Rebellion. But first, let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness throughout our lives, throughout the generations. We pray that you guide this time together and let us be encouraged and learn what you want to speak to us through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're about transforming dominant culture. We're about transforming lives with the gospel of the we story, a gospel heritage and with a vision for kingdom come. That's what we often talk about here. And my name is Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe, and we are going to read today out of Numbers 15 and 16. And this was when the Israelites had been wandering in the desert. And what's interesting about that, earlier on, there were lots of different dissensions that happened, lots of different grumblings. And you recall that they wandered in the desert for 40 years and God fed them manna and quail just to give some backstory. And of course, the people complain, it seems like some kind of spike in terms of what's going on and what they're reacting to. And then God intervenes in some way and provides, and then there's some stability and then another spike or a drop. And it really just is this erratic, but almost erratic pattern that we see in their response to life after slavery, life after Egypt, and honestly, life after the fall since the beginning. And here we find in Numbers 9 that the Lord institutes the second Passover, and he talks about the cloud and the fire and how he's leading them. And there's all these different guidelines in previous chapters of Numbers about how to build the tabernacle and where to arrange the lambs and the dedication of the Levites. And you can read about this either listening to a website or app online or on your phone or through a, a Bible. Um, they're very readily avail available. And if you don't have one and can't find one, go ahead and reach out to us and we will get to you to access one. In Numbers 12, there's the dissension of Aaron and Miriam. So Moses, it's, it's described of him in Numbers that he's the meekest man that walked the earth. <laughs> and he's put in charge of this whole relic crew, this whole people who are just really not happy with their life situation. And in a way, you can't really blame them. They had just spent 400 years. That's all they knew throughout generations was dealing with this oppression of slavery. And so when God brings them out in the Exodus and then they wander in the desert because they didn't believe that they could take the promised land and it was too big and scary and the giants were too huge. And you recall in the narrative that, that Joshua and Caleb are the two that believe and you also recall in the narrative that at a certain point, we're getting ahead of ourselves, Moses loses his temper with the people, but he's constantly interceding for them. They screw up, they, they complain, they criticize Aaron, they criticize Miriam, they crit the brother and sister of Moses, they criticize Moses, 
They complain about the manna and quail in the desert of their wandering for 40 years. And they had said to the Lord and to Moses, you know, that we're not going to go into this land because, you know, our children might be bereaved of us and the wild animals and this, that, and the other. And they just had this super catastrophic vision to react to the good word and the promise, the vision that God had given them. So the Lord counters and said, well, since you said that, then you will wander the desert for 40 years and your children will be shepherds there. And this is an incredibly important detail to remember the role of the children as shepherds in the desert wanderings. And then you're going to all die and they'll inherit the promised land. Now, God had promised them this land, and now they have to go back the next generation and take what was promised to their parents' generation, but they have to take it by force. It's not something that they can just walk in and receive. So God has just these enormous and detailed instructions for them from Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that lay out just the role of the priesthood, the design of the tabernacle, the design and craftsmanship of all the details and tapestries, all the different metals. And then the in Leviticus, all of the bloody gory details of the different types of sacrifices and for what purpose. And then starting at where we're going to read today, Numbers 15, verse 37. Again, this is out of the New King James Version. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined." And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So we end on this seemingly obscure detail in chapter 15 about tassels and garments, and they're supposed to be a reminder. And there's some significance there because when we start in chapter 16, verse 1, it takes an unexpected turn. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, so the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, what just happened? There were instructions here on tassels. And preceding that, there were laws concerning unintentional sin, presumptuous sin, penalties for violating the Sabbath. There was just this long rule. And you're wondering, what are they reacting to? 
Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and it slides sideways and there's just this tension, there's this just tug of war, this tug and pull of competing for airtime, arguing over details that you don't really know where this person is coming from until it just is a whole ball of confusion. But what's interesting about this and that the Lord was giving instruction to Moses on who would be put out of the camp and who would be put to death. And that is fairly extreme. (laughs) It is extreme measure to sort of keep the people holy. And then this detail about tassels. And then why, why did these, these sons of along the lines of Levi, Eliab, Peleth, Reuben, and then men of renown. Have you ever wondered about that confusion, especially today? Because we're about cultural change, cultural influence with the gospel, putting the word into context. We're not about arguing over details in this ministry. We're about putting the gospel heritage into the context of our times. And have you noticed how men of renown, and maybe some women too, (laughs) but let's face it, on positions of leadership and on what you hear in mass media and what you hear as a cultural norm, it is often in a male voice or in norms that favor a type of communication that say, for example, prone to brevity or professionalism or individualism or do-it-yourself. And these are sort of signals in American culture of what is the expectation in conversation and giving feedback in organizations. There's often this expectation for brevity, for clarity, for, in other words, being quiet about the feedback you really need to give. And here's what's confusing. The argument that they give seems democratic on the surface. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? On the surface, that seems like a noble argument. That seems like they are trying to protect the congregation from being mistreated. They are trying to include them on the surface. But what we know of scoffing, what the Bible calls scoffing in the book of Proverbs, it's heavily there. It's also in the New Testament epistles. And you can just read it even in this account here that there are different tactics used, and one of which is to elevate a noble principle. We know Satan disguises as an angel of light, so it's it's a common tactic. You can just elevate a noble principle, and beneath that, though, have ulterior motive or be dishonest about what your grievance truly is. In other words, the details aren't really covering the core issue. Now, how I talk about that is a solutions-oriented space in my coaching practice, in my e-courses, in my books, 
really go into what does it actually mean to put the value that we're saying into our methods. So if, for example, we're saying we're pro-family, then what are we doing as a person, as a group, as a society, as a church or organization, as a sector in society? What are we doing in our method to be pro-family? What acts of service are we doing for family? You see, ideology can be so deceptive because it seems noble on the surface, but what it really is is a symptom that not enough people are doing that work to make that value come to life, to make that value a reality in our world. So I always enjoy talking about this topic, and yet it's challenging because There is a quick, often a quick, sympathetic nervous system reaction, a conditioning that goes with the cultural norm of the different requirements that are put on us that we may not even think about, but that are detailed in some literature of how we're supposed to nest our response. We're supposed to, in other words, if someone is poking a dog, do you expect the dog to say, please, sir, stop doing that? (laughs) The dog is going to have a few different responses at its disposal. So perhaps it might bark, or it might whine or whimper, or it might growl, or it might take its mouth with a stick and bite it, try to pull it away. And if you do that to a dog, I'm just guessing here, I've never done this, and I don't advocate hurting animals, by the way, poke a dog repeatedly, it's going to reduce its options and react even louder ways, even more aggressive or fearful ways, because it's realizing that its reaction to you is not doing enough to prevent you from poking it. It is losing its autonomy, therefore losing its options to be in this safe space, minding its own business. If you do this on a semi-regular basis, and this is an important detail, say after poking it, you're really nice, you pet it, you feed it, you take good care of it, And then at some unexpected time later, it could be the next moment, it could be the next day, it could be the next month, it could be months or weeks from now. If you do that same behavior again, out of the blue, that dog might feel confused. Like, why? You were just nice to me and now you're poking me and I didn't do anything wrong to provoke that. What's going on? And then it's going to try to decide then, what, what am I going to do? Now I have this affection, dog affection towards this person. I don't understand what's going on. Do I respond meekly? Do I react to defend myself? What? Now it's confused about resources that it, it had naturally and instinctively as God made that dog at its disposal. If 
you do this erratic pattern enough over time, that dog is going to become more and more sensitized in its mind, its brain, to what it sees, its cues in the environment as to whether or not you're going to poke it with a stick. You will increase its vigilance. You will increase its sensitivity to pain when you poke it. And to the point where that dog might not be able to relax, and it might have even increased pain or feelings of pain even when you're not poking it. And then its own confusion on its reactions. Now, I could go on with this metaphor, but you know I'm not talking about a dog. And please don't go poke dogs with sticks and say, because I, I said that on a podcast, you get to do that. That's inhumane. And if we could easily say that and not be surprised at a dog's reaction, if maybe it goes on the other direction, it becomes meaner than you are. I once had a neighbor, he trained his dog and he was a mean man, and so he trained that dog to be a meaner man than he, meaner dog, excuse me, than he was. And that poor animal it ended up hurting a poor child, so to speak, uh, who was mile down the road, minding her own business on her own property, and he went and took a chunk out of her leg. <laughs> so you can say, well, was that the dog's fault? Nature nurture. Those, those seeming polar opposites are the details that are beside the point. There is a certain point at which we have to point out and call out the core issue here, which these, back to the text in numbers, these men of renown believed that they were justified to go and, and reading down in the text, to go and what they actually did was they stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This place where God was meeting with Moses and giving him the instructions. Now I have to just ask, were they jealous? Honestly. Because here is this, it says in the text, this meekest man that walked the earth at that time, Moses. <laughs> and here they are, 250 of them. You have to wonder, because what they're essentially saying and what they did say, you take on too much for yourself. That was their lead-in. You see, scoffers always give themselves away, but their methods will confuse you so you can't think about it. You, you sort of lose within reach your normal instinctive response to that that uh, provocation. So that's what they were doing. They were jealous. And we know, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, that in James 3.16, it says, it says that jealousy and self-interest are the reason for every evil practice and every strife and confusing, disorderly thing. So we live in times where there's confusion and disorderliness. We live in times where there's a lot of strife. We live in a time where it can be easy to be self-righteous on any given issue, on any given situation that's happening. And that warrants discussion, it warrants change, it warrants improvement, and yet, what direction do we go? See, 
sometimes it's really easy to avoid talking about the core issue in these situations. And what was happening was, in their jealousy, they they claimed that they were about the holy congregation, but they were really about themselves. And what they did not like was limits. So this overreach to say that they were representing the entire congregation was a reaction, it seems, if the chronology of the text is indicative, that they were upset that there would be rules to call out sin and that there would be accountability for sin. Now, I'm just going to get a little deep and personal with the church right now. And where we're at, at least in the American church, the mainstream, that rather dominant culture church of church in the United States, as I've experienced it growing up in it, it is a lot different than the church I grew up in, which was family style, intergenerational, outreach with neighbors, and regular gathering for food, fellowship, caregiving with meal drops, regular prayer, um, ministries across the board for different ages as well, and just super humble and funny and caring leadership, pastoral leadership. That's what I remember in the church I grew up with. And there were also, as with any organization's challenges. It seems that and this is a an issue that there are nonprofit organizations and advocates that address, but scoffers seem to love to prey upon churches. A modern word might be someone on a sociopathic spectrum, but there's usually one that will seem to want to prey on it because, and there actually have been literature and some research around this, they believe, at least in these studies, that we're a bunch of idiots because <laughs> I've had one say that to me before because they think they're so awesome. They know what they're there for, but we don't see it because we want one thing. We want people to come to know the Lord. We want to gather together. We want the ideals, but often without the accountability. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, tip us at the link below and inquire, subscribe, and shop our merchandise label of Heritage Tree and Heritage at dinamichellerosco.com and dogwoodgroup.io. Come back again when we gather around the Heritage Tree.